welcome to the March DCM podcast. It's March, so in London it's Advertising Week Europe. It took place last week at Picturehouse Central. It is a big celebration of all things advertising. All, m- many of the biggest brands in media were there hosting events or just to watch uh, some of the incredible content that's put on and as media partners digital cinema media had a big presence at the um, event on monday our ceo karen stacy was part of a round table discussion on tuesday we hosted the official ad week film club with a preview of wes anderson's isle of dogs which went down an absolute storm and then on thursday i interviewed film director ben wheatley it was a really fun Q&A. He's a really great guy to interview, uh, has some great stories. But I have to say, just to warn you, he does like to swear occasionally. So if swearing is not your thing, then this might not be the podcast for you. And if you are listening to this in your car with your kids, maybe turn it down or just make sure your kids understand the context of each of these words and when to use them correctly. But that's all from me. Let's go to my interview with Ben Wheatley at Advertising Week Europe last week. And I'll be back next month with a brand new guest. Now, I'm delighted today to be joined by one of the most respected filmmakers in the UK. I'll quickly bring you up to speed with what he's done so far. Hopefully, you will have seen most of these films. He started with Down Terrace in 2008, which was made for £6,000. Is that correct? Uh, He followed that up with Kill List in 2011, a film that I personally am still recovering from. Uh, Then a year later, he released Sightseers. Uh, Then he did the groundbreaking multi-platform release of A Field in England. And then more recently, he's made High Rise, the uh, adaptation of the J.G. Ballard novel, and then followed that up with Free Fire last year. Of course, I did those all on my own. I'm entirely responsible for you can, every aspect. You can of take those all the credit. Yeah, seeing as no one else is here. He's also directed uh, television, including Doctor Who. Yep. Uh, and some ads for some major brands such as Premiere In and Go Compare. Please welcome Ben Wheatley. Hello. Hello. I like this a lot. We've got an alarming clock down here. It's counting down. It turns red at five minutes like as well. It's, it's scary. Psychotic TED talk. We better, we better get going. Okay, I know. I'm just uh, mesmerised by that There's thing. three minutes left. Um, 19, 18. Sorry. <laughs> so the, the session's entitled Storytelling. This is an excuse to get to know a bit more about you and how your, your creative process. How do you select the stories you develop? Um, I write lots of stories all the time. And then um, sometimes they get traction and get made and sometimes they don't. So sometimes they've basically got like a kind of metaphorical drawer, which scripts go in and out of or prison until they're good enough. And sometimes I, and I often write stuff just for shits and giggles. So I'll, I'll look at, I'll, I'll adapt something which I don't have the rights to with no chance of ever making it just to see. Um, and then sometimes I'll make, I'll, you know, make up something off the top of my head and go, oh, that would make a good story. And I'll write that down as well. And then eventually... You know, there'll come a point when someone goes, have you got any, uh, what, what are you thinking about at the moment? And I'll pitch short versions of the things and they'll go, well, that sounds shit. Or they'll go, oh, that sounds good. And then something will get made. So do you have specific people you soundboard with or just uh, how do you know if story's good enough? Um, I, think, I think they're all good enough. It's just whether or not they fit within the zeitgeist of the moment for financing. That's the thing. It's like whether or not the world is ready for you know, a particular type of story um, and some things that I really enjoy and, and obsessed about, not everyone are, is. 
you know, so my, my current story about a you know, high-octane, exciting thriller about a man collecting late 70s techniques, um, hi-fi separates, I don't think I'll find a, or, uh, you know, a, a buyer for that one. But I, I'm, exci- Just you wait. I'm excited about it, so I'm writing it. You know. And uh, what do you look for in a story? Um, I mean, it's got a, I've got to be able to read the script without passing out. Um, and I have a kind of like script narcolepsy problem. So I'll start reading and then I'll just collapse. It's, it's not funny. It's, just, it's <laughs> difficult. So I, have to, so I do most of my work. I don't have a desk. I just do everything in bed. So it saves on. So if you don't fall asleep, it's a good script. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And it's really tough. And I find like a lot of really, a lot of scripts are really, really well written. That are not my own, obviously, but other people's scripts are really well written. And, um, and they, that gets you through the first like 30 pages, but then by like 35, 36, you're just like, oh, this doesn't mean anything, this thing, and you start to fall away. But that's, you know, there's a lot of like craft goes into writing stuff, but not enough story. Yeah. So you co-write with Amy Jump a lot. Yeah. Who happens to be your wife. She is, yes. How does, she, how does she feel when you fall asleep during one of her scripts? Um, I wouldn't dare do that. Um, no, never. I'd never fall asleep during one of hers. Jesus. But if you're awake, then she's like, this is the one we've got to make. Well, no, I mean, usually, I mean, I, my collaboration with Amy is different every time and often, and, and, you know, and that's also been kind of slightly overblown. It's like of, of all the movies that I've made, I've, um, I, I've directed, I've only written three of them, you know, and Amy's written two on her own completely. So she, you know, it's, it's, it's much less a collaboration, more she either writes them herself and they're fine, or I've written something that's broken and she fixes it. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you've worked in ads, television, and music promos. Yeah. Uh, what? I'm not brilliant at music promos, though, to be fair. Uh, what was wrong with the ones you've made? I don't know. I'm too old. Is it a young person's game? I think it's a young person's game, yeah. I basically missed the boat on that one. Well, um, what keeps you coming back to the cinema and making films for the big screen, or projects for the big screen? Um, I like the... I like cinemas. I like the fact that people can't... We, we, we just made a film recently and made a screening of it and it was great. And then other people on the periphery of it need to see it, so they get sent links. But you can see now with the modern link how much they've watched <laughs> and when they stopped and when they started and when they stopped and when they started. And these fuckers are watching like <laughs> 20 minutes, 15 minutes and having a cup of tea or coming back to it the next day and watching in chunks. You know, at least in the cinema, it's like a prison, isn't it? You can't get out. <laughs> and you've spent a load of money. You've got you're making a definite thing. You want to. You know, it's not like half-assed, is it? It's not like you know you're watching Netflix. And you go, I'll watch a bit of that. That shit. No, that shit as well. Oh god, what am I going to watch? Oh god, a documentary about Hitler or something. You know. <laughs> so I think that the um, I think the cinema experience is the perfect experience. But also the length. It's like an album. It's the right length between ninety, well, seventy-five minutes and two hours. I was going to say actually because your films are are generally quite sh- on the short side of modern films, aren't they? You know, you, have you made a film longer than two hours yet? Uh, yeah, High Rise was longer, um, but that, and, and in a way that was the most successful of all the films because it meant at festivals I could go and have a meal and come back. <laughs> but the shorter films are harder to get. You can't get so far from the cinema to come back to get the meal in time, so you end up having to hang around in the bar. Or go McDonald's or something. Yeah, it's bad. But yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, was it Hitchcock said about you shouldn't make films that are longer than your... Um, bladder capacity and as I get older my mind is less so I like a 90 minute film it's you're in and you're out you know so you're going to graduate to short films eventually. basically yeah yeah I think so webisodes <laughs> and um, 
so in terms of the, the length of your films, is that a budgetary thing or is that just the... No, it's cheap to make long films. If you want to make long films, you put more pauses in. Most of them start off at two and a half hours and get cut down. It's not so much, I don't think it's budget. So um, we'll go back to um, your writing process and your work with a a Amy. Uh, do you talk a lot about an idea before you come to write it or do you just go off and do your thing and then fax each other the pages you've written? Or She won't talk about the writing process at all or the meaning of anything with me. That's how I, you know that film, what's that film, Death Trap? You know, seen that film? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a, it's a film about writers and, and it's uh, Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine and they, they have this desk and they sit there and one's got a typewriter, the other's got a typewriter and they write away and they collaborate between each other. And you always imagine that, so it's like a 1940s thing where someone starts a sentence and the other one finishes it and goes, oh no, I've got this. And that's not how we work at all. Um, it's well, much more like I'll write a script and she'll read it and go, that's shit. And then just give it back to me, it's completely different. So that's, so it's a brutal process. I mean, we've been together since we were kids and we've been writing stuff together since we were, we were teenagers and it's always been like that. So there's no um, tiptoeing around, no ego, or it's just... If no, well, not from my end, no, I can't, you know, I, I basically my, I, I see my job when I'm writing with Amy is like an ice-breaking ship. So, and the, and the ice is like the white pages of, of a ream of paper, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the pages with the story and the high concept stuff and then she'll come along and write, and write it afterwards if we're working that way um sometimes i write something and it's when it comes back it usually i um i'll write the character names and the story and stuff and the setting um and everything will change but they will be, remain the same so at least i've got some dignity and put my name on it but in something like um field in england she changed the names of the characters and all the story as well and all the dialogue and so effectively I, 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 and the title, oh, okay. yes, there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing left of that script at all. So that, that's why my name's not on it. And um, I'm assuming you use screenwriting software, is it, or, is it, or do you write on notebooks or notepads? And um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I hate fucking Final Draft, it's horrible. Um, but I do write, I write in notepads sometimes. And, and sometimes I write with a pen. Depends what goes on. I tried to do the what's it, the dictating thing, but it doesn't work very well. It was a bit Alan Partridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sound f foolish, and it's lots of and then and then. And do you, is, what do you do to inspire yourself? Do you listen to music, or or do you listen to music when you're writing? Usually, when I'm writing now, it's usually just fear, because I've got to get something done, and times you know there's only so much time you can spend looking on Instagram or playing video games or looking out the window. And I found as I got older, I've got this thing called, I, feel, I feel that it's called cat mode, where I can just sit in a room and just go. <laughs> and that can go on for hours, you know, <laughs> and, until basically, like the ticking clock here, yeah. 2847, Jeez. the ticking clock goes, you've got to fucking write that thing. We're running out of money, you know, got to pay the mortgage and stuff. And then I start writing. I and I can write that's quite quick. Fe feeling left after you left school or university? No, I think it goes on forever, doesn't it? The fear. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's inspiring this. It, it? <laughs> so, um, in terms of storyboarding, or when you're putting a film together, yeah, do you storyboard? I do. Yeah, I do now. I used to think that it was. I've read a lot of film books, and uh, and all my favourite filmmakers were really macho and turned up on set, basically either completely drunk or you know quite close to it, and with no preparation, and would carve out these incredible movies off the top of their heads 
and I, I started doing it like that and came to the conclusion that I wasn't as good as them and um, I really should fucking plan it. So I started to, yeah. And I, now I use storyboards as part of the script writing process, so I'll storyboard while writing. And do you draw them yeah, yourself? Yeah, and jump backwards and forwards between drafts. So I'll do a draft and I'll do a storyboard version of the whole film, not just the action stuff, everything. And then I'll look at it and go, there's a lot of people in kitchens in this film, as I can see from these drawings. Or if you're drawing it and going, fucking hell, I'm really bored of this, you know, it's boring. And that helps a lot because sometimes when you're on the plastic piano, you can make up all sorts of nonsense that makes sense in writing terms, in terms of exposition or whatnot. But, but visually, you've turned it into a radio play and, it, you know, and drawing it out helps bring back that visual side to it. And also it's the cheapest way of making a film without making it. So something like Free Fire, which has got a really simple setup, mm. but seems really complicated within that setup. Did mm. you, do you do extensive storyboarding and planning for that? Yeah, I had to for that because it, because it was in real time and in one space. If you didn't plan it out, and, and because of the nature of it, which was a gunfight that goes wrong, and everyone's you know, basically, they turn up at this place, they'll get shot, and then they crawl around for an hour, which I thought was an incredibly clever high concept. Yeah. But it was, um, uh, yeah, so we've, we've looked at it and realised, yeah, if we fuck this up early on, then you could find that two characters bump into each other as they're crawling around an hour into it that you hadn't thought about and then you, the whole story would be screwed, you know, so that had to be planned meticulously. So we, I built it in Minecraft initially in 3D space and walked around inside that and shared that with all the other heads of department. And then, the, uh, and then we found the space and then we basically got cardboard boxes which were the same volume as a Minecraft cube and replicated the Minecraft set inside the space. And then after that, we committed to building it. So. You, some people might not know that that, because a lot of people consider that your big American debut free fire, but it was actually shot in Brighton, correct? Yes. And so you went and found this location in Brighton yeah. that looked like Massachusetts, was it? Well, it looked like a warehouse. In, and, they, and they seem, they, they're pretty general. Uh, you know, they share, they a share a lot of kind of things that are similar all over the world. It's been a while since I've been in a warehouse. Look, look <laughs> at my hands. Um, but, um, also, it wasn't shot in the past either. You know, and that's, that's the thing. It's, it's like, it, and I, we had a lot of stuff about this, oh, you're not shot it in America, but then, you know, Batman isn't shot in America either. Yep. So a lot of the time, you know, a lot of stuff isn't shot in America. Yeah, Wayne Manor's not in America. No. Tr truth bomb for the audience <laughs> there. Um, but um, why did you shoot in Brighton? Is that just because it's near to home? Well, that's the main reason, yeah. It was quite near my house. And that makes it a lot che cheaper. No, it's just nicer. It means I can have dinner with my wife and kid in the evening rather than drinking it up with the crew which is great for like two weeks but then jesus and you work you work remarkably fast I, I read i read recently that your latest film which i'm not sure that we can talk about but was colin your anus Co it's called colin your anus yeah <laughs> that's genuinely what it's called isn't it it is genuinely what and uh that was shot in 11 days yep now what is it about shooting at that length? What does that give you as a filmmaker? Well, I think of it in, the, in these terms, right? Like a, a football match is 90 minutes, isn't it? I've, I've heard. And, um, and it's shot in real time. It's a TV show documentary about the playing of a game that's shot in 90 minutes and it's 90 minutes long. So if you can shoot something as complicated as that in 90 minutes, then why shouldn't you be able to shoot a feature film in 10 days? Seems like a luxury, doesn't it? 
Is that the quickest shoot, shoot you've done? Ten, ten uh, eight is the quickest, yeah. Okay. And um, now I want to talk a bit more about the themes of your films. So your films often have um, surprising moments of violence, or uh, and that's quite a difficult thing to pull off. Uh, do you plan those well in advance? Are, are they happy accidents, or is that um, how do you make sure that they're in keeping with the story? I don't know about happy accidents. That's a bit weird. I think it's mostly pl everything's planned, obviously, because it's like a script, which is like a blueprint for what you're going to do. And uh, but it, I, I, I think that you, when you're when you're making a film, from my experience, that that there, a lot of it's about empathy and feedback in the room, and you can be surprised about how effective stuff is. You know, it's like I'm saying, it's easy to write the stuff, but then when you see someone actually physically doing it to another person, it's not. It, they are. I think you can have you know acting, dialogue backwards and forwards. You can have a disconnection to that and look, watch it on the monitor and go, well, this is just a scene and it's so kind of broken up, you know, because it has to be shot from so many different angles that, that it doesn't feel like real life in the room. But violence is violence, really, you know, and when you see it for, for happening, you, you get the same kind of fight or flight kind of feeling that you might do if you, you saw it in real life. So, yeah, it's kind of, it is shocking to do. Um, and when we made Kill List, everyone thought we were making a comedy up until about halfway through when we filmed this scene with someone getting their head cracked in with a hammer and I remember the rest of the crew just like looking at me like I was fucking sick or something and it was a real turning point you know because it had been quite jolly up until that point. And Michael Smiley was best known for comedy prior to Kill Yeah well I've worked with a lot of comedians and stand-up people yeah. What is it about comedians that make good dramatic actors? Um, I, my theory is, is that they know what it is to fail utterly in front of loads of people and it puts a slightly haunted look in their eyes, yeah. which is good for drama. Th this look right now. Yeah, yeah the fear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really good at improvising as well. And, and then when they're not shooting, they're really fun to have around. So do you improvise? Does an 11-day shoot give you time to improvise? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is about filmmaking is that, that a lot of, I found, is that a lot of time is spent, why stuff takes so long to, to do is because it's every time you move the camera it takes you an hour to relight it but if you treat the film as a documentary then then you can shoot as fast as anything you know I mean and the something like um I, I was looking at the Maisel's documentary primary about Kennedy you know and that was a feature film that was shot in three days and you you know and it gives that the energy of performance the amount of time you spend on performance is very small in comparison to the technical side you spend on lighting so once you suck all the lighting time out of it and put it over there for another movie the actual performance time even on a 10-day shoot can be twice as much as you would spend on a traditional shoot and your films i think all of them except uh, one has, has got a relatively downbeat ending uh, yeah that's like life though isn't it because you all die well that was my question <laughs> are, are you horribly most likely everyone says I was gonna say, are you a pessimist grisly. or a realist or neither or both or both yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I am both and of your films as well so Free Fire is obviously set in the 70s High Rise was written in the 70s and yeah um set in the 70s uh what is it about the decade, the 70s as a decade that inspires you as a filmmaker? I, I was sitting trying to work out, I was going to write a horror film and I, wanted, I was trying to think what scares me, you know, like, is it, is it vampires or, or psychopaths or something? And I thought, no, what fucking scares me is the 70s, <laughs> you know, fundamentally terrifies me from being a kid in it. 
um, which is, I know it's bad now, but it was really bad in the 70s, I think. I mean, it's that, that you know, when you've got stuff like, they would literally come to the school and show you little films about drowning in shallow lakes. Yeah. Why did they do that? And <laughs> touching overhead wires. And yeah, like and being attacked by paedophiles and stuff. And then, and then you come home and they'd put threads on. Threads on, yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, horrible. So that's why I'm... I, I, I also, it's my childhood, isn't it? So it's like you, you get that thing of um, directors always going to be making films about their... We, we had to sit through those shit films about the 60s as well, didn't we? So we'll be the 70s and then soon we'll be getting more films about the 80s and 90s, stuff like that. It's just a, it's an inevitability of cinema. <laughs> and you mentioned Colin Uanus. I did. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, it's kind of a bit... It's back to... It's like a kind of... A second part to Down Terrace, only without any of the crime in it. So it's like it's the first like non-genre film I've done, pretty much. Though, yeah, you know, it's not a crime film or a horror film or something like that. So I was kind of desperate to make a film. I'm 45, and I wanted to make a film where no one got murdered. Um, so I did. Do Do you have pressure to make films that your kids can watch? Um, well, luckily he's getting older every year, so he can actually watch some of them now. Which is good, but um, I want to make kids' films. I'd want to make and want to make a rom com and all these things. It's just um, it always ends up a bit dark, you know. Sightseers <laughs> was meant to be the comedy, upbeat comedy, and it was fucking horrible by the end. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and then talking about your music choices, I always yeah. look forward to the music choices you've got in your films. That SOS by Portishead and High Rise is amazing, and. Um, Tainted Love in Sightseers. How do you come to your music choices? Are these just songs that you've loved throughout your life? Yeah, I tend to have a rule of only putting stuff in that I like, I mean, which sounds weird. Like You'd think that would be obvious, but a lot of times things you've got like a, mu a music supervisor and they'll go, oh, look, there's a scene with a waterfall. Have we got a track that's got the, wa the word waterfall in it? And then you end up with that. or Enya or something. Yeah, Enya or... Um, anyway, um, so, so there's stuff like that. So... And also because I, you know, I really like music. So I, I, the beginning of the process for me usually is, is making a big Spotify playlist and kind of listening to tons and tons of music to think about the film. Um, something like Sightseers, the Tainted Love thing had come from Edgar Wright, really, who was um, an exec producer on it. And he, I'd, I'd had it all covered with um, Krautrock stuff, and um, and it was a bit dour. And he was saying, and he said, "Oh, don't don't be afraid to put pop music in it." And I, because I'd come from like a low budget background, I didn't want to pay for it because I'm tight. Um, but then as soon as I was allowed to, I was just like, ah, oh, brilliant. So I started putting pop music all over it. Um, and, and, you know, Tate Love is a, a track that I'd listened to since I was a kid and really, really loved. So that's why I chose that one. So do you choose the track before you've started shooting or do you shoot and then see which tracks work well with the footage? Um, but a bit of both depends what happens. It's a it's a rights game as well. It's like whether you can get the clearance for stuff, you know. And often you can't get it in advance. So, um, Tainted Love turned out to be quite a reasonably priced track. You know, I would have thought that would have cost a fortune. And in fact, the 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 soft sell version of it was more was cheaper than the the original version of it. So who knew? But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a great treat doing the music and like and then getting to work with kind of Jim Williams and Clint Mansell and um, Jeff Barrow and all those kind of uh, you know composers stuff is is a treat. So I get to go to the go and go to the studio and pretend I'm a musician with them. 
even though I'm not. But they're very generous and kind of listen to my ideas and then don't do them. We're going to come to you guys for some questions shortly, so get your thinking caps on. But um, as I mentioned in the intro as well, you've directed ads for some high-profile brands. Uh, how is your approach to directing ads different to directing uh, film and television? Well, the process is different because of the way that the, the hierarchy of advertising, uh, the, the way, I mean, uh, advertising, directing is completely different from TV and TV is completely different from advertising and from cinema. So there's a different hierarchy of control. So on a, in a TV situation, the producer and the, the um, writer at the top of the pyramid, in film, the writer, director, producer at the top. In advertising, it's the agency, client, fucking everybody. And then it's down the bottom is the director kind of being told what to do from the monitors. So it's kind of, um, it's, that's a diff it's a totally different setup. Um, but uh, I, I've always enjoyed it. And I started off doing, you know, viral stuff back in the, back in the day, you know, when it was an exciting new thing. Um, but it was, uh, it, I, I, I look at it in terms of like you get to compress storytelling right down and you get to work with lots of interesting people. So it's, yeah, I like it. Does anyone in the audience have a question? Not that I can see anyone. Oh, there's a lady down here. Do we need to get her a microphone? Thank you. Um, I was wondering, uh, Many of your films, um, specifically like High Rise and Free Fire recently, have just had fantastic casts. And I was just wondering, what, have, what has the casting process brought to those characters? And has it changed your, um, your initial you know, perception of them? Or what's been your relationship? Did you picture those people when you were writing them? Um, the casting of stuff, I've been very lucky with, with casting and um, that... Often it's been people that we've wanted. There's sometimes there's uh, initially rather than that you can get this set up where you where they go well if you have eight, these four names then you could, this film can be made on the bigger budget stuff and then that's a choice for four people so it's not like a, a massive thing. But my outlook on it is always that they they may not be the initial people that you would think of for the parts but they're still really brilliant and at the top of their game so you're lucky to get them if you get them. Um, but on on Free Fire and High Rise, it was all they were all people we wanted initially anyway, and that and that, and that was the lucky thing of of the finance and the and the and the and the creative decisions coming together all in one thing. So, um, but yeah, I mean we tend to rewrite or Amy will rewrite the script depending on um, who's cast to put it back into the meter of the way that the people speak rather than. And, and, I, and I, I do believe a lot of um, bad acting is usually down to impossible to say words from the script, not necessarily actors being bad. So that, you know, when you call upon actors to say something that's never been said in the history of human consciousness, you know, of co human communication, they will sound shit. And that's what you see in movies where people are trying to gobble their way through this terrible load of exposition. You go, God, they're awful. Who, why can't they act properly? Well, because they can't, it's impossible to say. So, um, so we give them... A, you know, we, we kind of meet them halfway in a way and, and think about who they are as actors and, and whether or not that, just that rhythm of the dialogue could be changed. So is that done after a, a table read-through? No. Um, we tend to, and we tend to kind of cast from looking at interviews and stuff rather than performances. So we'll look at like, um, you know, the appearances on chat shows and stuff rather than, than their various roles they've been in because we don't really want those performances. And you don't want the same performance yeah. from them again. So, another question from the you guys. Oh, there's a lady down here. Can we get her a microphone, please? 
Um, was there ever a first film that you watched that made you say, I want to be a filmmaker? Um, I, I used to have to go to bed at seven. And so I would only ever see the first act of a lot of films as a kid. So I think it was probably half, a, a, a 20 minutes of a film that made me want to watch a mo to make movies. Um, it was very, it was always very painful that. So I, I, I remember seeing like the first, the first Doctor No and kind of going, oh, this is an in intriguing half hour. <laughs> I wonder if I'll ever see the rest of this fucking film when I grow up. Um, also, I remember taping um, Alien and getting the timings wrong on it. So it, it recorded two and a half hours of golf um, and then half an hour of Alien, uh, which was basically up until the point, spoilers, uh, uh, when um, John Hurt dies. And that was just the most depressing short film I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did read this thing and it was, I think it was a comedian's bit, so it's, it's probably paraphrasing it, but someone who'd been taken to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and then the, the, the um, there was an interval when the car went over the cliff and then they came back and it comes up the other side, but his dad thought the film had finished, so took them home. <laughs> and it was a really depressing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So um, what films and directors would you say have most influenced your directing style? Um, I think Taxi Driver was a massive film for me. Um, I, it was naive times when I saw it. I remember seeing it in the video shop and going, Ooh, who wants, to, that sounds boring. Film about a taxi driver sounds rubbish. I wonder <laughs> if it's got anything to do with Danny DeVito or anything. And um, taxi. And so we rented it, me and my mate Dom, and, and it was just blew, a, blew the tops of our heads off. And then after that, we tried to see all the Scorsese films. But that was like, yeah, the first thing I felt like was properly authored. I think I was like in the mindset of like, oh, all films are done by one person or something, or they just, all the actors make it up or something like that, um, which is a common misconception, you know. And Martin Scorsese exec produced Free Fire. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about? Um, I was talking to, I got American agents and, and, I, and, I, and I'd heard, uh, basically the Scorsese had been in the UK doing Hugo, making Hugo and they'd, he'd been interviewed by The Telegraph and he said uh, he'd been watching local films. So he'd seen like um, uh, s uh, some uh, Lynn Ramsey movies and some um, Joanna Hogg movies and he'd seen Kill List and he mentioned it. He said he liked it, so I said to my agent, look, if you can do anything for me, please, I'd love to meet Scorsese. And so they, they kind of arranged it, which was, I'd, it was such a weird thing because I'd never met anyone that I'd bought books about. You know, I bought ridiculously heavy coffee books, coffee table books about Scorsese, and, it was, and then you're in the room with him and it was all a bit weird. But, um, but yeah, but he was, he'd done, he'd done strange stuff like Watch Down Terrace and all the, and the extras and stuff on it, and I was like, oh my God, it's blowing my mind. And, but you're just at such a disadvantage when you're talking to someone like that, because all my anecdotes about cinema are all from reading stuff in books, and, and his, he was there. So you go, what about that? Oh. <laughs> and you're worried about just asking him the same things everyone else asks him. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, like me. Does anyone else have a question in the audience? On that bombshell. Got his hand up there. You've got eight minutes, 31 seconds. Oh, maybe quick. Is that, is that on? Okay, what's up, Ben? Um, in this, uh, hey guys, uh, in this like uh, climate of like, you know, so many franchises and like specific like superhero genre and all that kind of stuff, um, where it feels like just everything's been churned out like month after month after month. I'm curious to know what a Ben Wheatley uh, superhero movie would be like. 
what would you what would you what what if you I don't know if you ever thought about it, but what would what would you personally, with your personal taste, want to do with that genre, or would you think would be interesting to do with that genre? Well, I've, I've collected comics since I was a kid, and it's all been a bit strange watching it. You know, I was really excited at the start of it, and um, to see all the stuff that I'd read when I was little all becoming movies, and it's great. And my son was quite little as well at the time, so I've seen everything, every Marvel film, every DC film, and you know. But um, what would I? I don't know. I mean, I. It de it depends really on on um, it's whether they'd let me do it, you know, or ask me. <laughs> it's not really a, and what would my version of a I, my version of a comic adaptation might be a different question. I mean, I'm doing I've been um, adapting Frank Miller and Jeff um, Darrow's Hard Boiled, so that's a you know a proper big comic book movie. But Marvel's a different thing because that's you know that that's more. With no disrespect to it, it's like a massive TV series, isn't it? And they all they all are interlinked and 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 feel like each other. So it's they're, they're not looking for for necessarily people to put a, a massive stamp on it or change it because they already know what they're doing and they're doing it really well. But um, but then again, I've done Doctor Who, which is the same situation. You know, I didn't go in there and completely change that. I was, you know, you you go in and do the script and you enjoy the the take the pleasures from it. You know. Um, so I'm hedging around this question, I know. If you could direct any graphic novel or comic book adaptation, what would it be? Well, first it'd be hardboard because I spent two years writing the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I don't know, the VCs from 2000 AD, something like that. Do we have any more questions? The time has gone orange, uh, which is scary. So it was always orange. Wasn't no, it was different colour. Oh, I was green before. Yeah, it was green. We've probably got time for one more question from the audience, if anyone's got one. Well, several short, simple ones, or one long, complicated one? Well, I've got a longer one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, what advice would you give to someone who was starting out as a filmmaker, or aspired to be a filmmaker? Um, I've got really uh, useless advice about that. I remember going, I meant to... I remember going to um, South by Southwest and they had uh, Linklater and um, uh, Rodriguez and all these guys there and they gave a talk about um, how, you know, an inspirational talk and they just stood up on the, on the podium and went, just go for it, fuck yeah! <laughs> and then fucked off. And then the next one we go, just go for it, fuck yeah, do it, just do it! Ooh! And then walked away again. And, it, and I was like, wow. But it's true, it's, that's what it is. And, you know, I would have been... Nowhere if I hadn't made Down Terrace, and that was the best eight days time I ever spent in my life, you know, and it totally completely changed, can change my life, and I, and I think that's it. And there's no barrier to that, except for, on, you know, we spent six grand, so that's quite, it's a bit of a barrier if you're on your ass, but you can still, the technology's moved on so much that you could do it on your phone, or borrow a phone, if you can't afford a phone. But, so I think that, that side of it, it, it the, the the cost of it is gone. Um, and we spent all the money on Down Terrace because we shot it in Brighton and brought all the actors down by train and put them up in hotels. That's where all the money went. So you could be done just on the streets for, for virtually nothing. Um, and that's the only way to move forward. You've got to make something and then, because no one is going to give you money if you've never done anything before. And I think that short films are all well and good, but they still don't prove that you can, or show that you can work in the long form. Um, so, yeah, it's utterly uh, hopeless advice, but you just have to go and make a feature film. 
uh, Steven Soderbergh has got a film coming out tomorrow called Unsane, which he shot on an iPhone. Yeah. Would you consider making a film on an iPhone? Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. It's, it's about the story. I mean, you can get away with shit picture. That's been going on for ages. I mean, it doesn't make any, that doesn't make a difference. Shit sound, on the other hand, is something, something else entirely. If it doesn't sound very good, everyone goes, oh, God, it's, oh, what's that? But if it, you know, it can look all grainy and horrible, that's fine. So we already mentioned Colin Uanus. When can we expect to see that? Um, well, it's almost done. So um, I don't know, this year some point, the anus will be coming to a cinema near you <laughs> and you can enter into the festivities. Um, uh, and what is uh, after the, the anus? Um, probably something really um, sensible and, um, and quality. <laughs> Can we expect to see Colin Uranus at the London, London Film Festival this year? Because Free Fire closed the film festival a couple of years ago. I think Colin Uranus would close the festival, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If they take it, I'll be well happy with that. That'd be good. But you can never assume that they're going to take it, you know. Do we have any more questions from the audience? There's one right at the back there. He thrust his hand to the sky. Hello. Uh, you talked about rewriting kind of franchises and stuff that you never get licensed to. Um, what's your like favourite franchise that you'd love to get your hands on and recreate? You um, mentioned Alien because I think somewhere along the line you were you were thinking about that. No. 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 I mean, I I don't know. It's the problem is is all the stuff that I really like has been knackered and done a lot, you know, and you end up just watching Aliens again and again and again. But it's like it's almost there's no point making another version of that because it's already been done really, really well. And anyway, stuff sci-fi movies are really hard to remake because they're set in the future anyway. So why, what are you going to add to them by set, doing them now? They're still in the future, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know really. Oh, uh, Baby Cart Assassin franchise, I'd do that. There's about 14 of them. So that would take a while. I think there's some frantic Googling going on right now. <laughs> And um, uh, this is a, 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 should have probably asked you this earlier, but um, it, we're being flashed at now. What made you want to write and direct features? <laughs> um, uh, because it, I started out trying to be a cartoonist and I couldn't draw hands. And, um, and, but I realised it was sequential storytelling I was trying to do. And it's the marriage, and I love cinema because it's the marriage, you see I've been asked this before, so I can just roll into it. But it's the, it's the marriage of sound and vision and all these different departments and, and, uh, the, uh, and drama and um, feeling and empathy and also technical aspects. That's why I really enjoy it. So the challenges are, there's loads of different challenges. And I, now I'm just ruined and I can't really do anything else. So did I have you, to make Did it you film. study film? God, no, no. I think I couldn't see why you would do that. So what was your kind of uh, formative <laughs> education in film? Um, watching films. Just watching films. Yeah, and making them. And not shorts, though. Uh, well, I did make some shorts, but they were awful. Are they available anywhere to watch? God, no. <laughs> well, no, there's one, on, there's one on the Down Terrace disc. Well, we are being aggressively flashed at now, so I will wrap this up. But It's terrifying me now. It though. is terrifying. All that remains for me is thank you for coming. Thank you to Moxie Pictures for uh, helping us put this event on, and thank you to Ben. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks.